Hello, and welcome to The Spectator's Literary Podcast. I'm Sam Leith, books editor of The Spectator, and today I'm joined by Ben Lerner. Ben is best known over here so far as a novelist for his first novel, Leaving the Atosha Station, and his second, 1004, which was shortlisted for the Folio Prize. But we're here today to talk about poetry. Ben is publishing a collection of his three previous works of poetry with some new verse in it, and also a monograph called The Hatred of Poetry. And Ben's poetry collection is called No Art, both of which sounds slightly negative. Are you okay, Ben? Yeah, I'm okay, but I believe in the I believe in the negative. I mean, the hatred of poetry isn't just my hatred of poetry. It's an attempt to think through why poetry is an art that's always denounced and defended, about why so many people across the years have loved to hate poetry. It's ultimately a book that's a defense of poetry and full of love, but uh, I am interested in why why it inspires a variety of kinds of contempt, both amongst poets and non-poets. And No Art as a title, I mean, it, there's a poem in the volume, the last poem in the volume is called No Art, which is really a poem that's a defensive feeling and a kind of celebration of poetry. But I liked having No in the title of the volumes because I do, um, I am interested in the critical or the negative, not just in the sense of being like pessimistic or a downer, but in the sense of using poetry as a space for thinking critically, thinking against. Was there also in that a sort of echo or riposte of Elizabeth Bishop's One Art? Yeah, yeah, I thought of that a little. It's a poem I, it's a poem I like. That wasn't that wasn't primary, but that echo was certainly there. Yeah. Can I also? I mean, I I don't want to try and sum up what's a pretty complicated and subtle thesis in the hatred of poetry, but it seems to me that you ground some of your idea about the hatred of poetry in a sort of disappointment. Yeah, I mean, you know, so there are lots of ways of talking about poetry, and and this is just one. I don't claim it's like the truth of poetry, but I do think that part of the reason why there's a lot of contempt for poetry is that we use the word poetry to name an impossible demand. Like, we use the word poetry to name our desire for a work of literature that could somehow at once be totally individual, like it expresses my innermost feelings, and totally social, like it, it could appeal to everyone. So we use the word poetry to basically fantasize about a social reconciliation that can't be brought about by actual poems. So we end up being really contemptuous of actual poems because they don't fulfill the impossible demand of the word poetry. But that's not actually a reason to turn away from poetry because poetry is still a space to experiment. So if if poetry names an impossible set of demands or a fantasy about social reconciliation, then actual poems can be disappointing. But that's not a reason to turn away from poetry because it's still a space to experiment and imagine new possibilities for language. But I think part of the reason why people, especially non-poets, always feel like poems are failing us is because they use the word poetry to, destru- to describe you know, a possibility of language that can't ever be made actual without falsification. Is there also a side of that that's, that's a social one in that poetry has this sort of weird position as a high-status art form, but one that either because of it or you know, feeding into that is one that most people think is in some way not for them on a day-to-day level? Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, I should say that you know, 
more people have complicated feelings about poetry than can agree on what poetry is. And a lot of the stuff I'm saying might not at all apply to, you know, to hip hop or to specific poetic traditions. But I do think a lot of people have this sense of poetry as either anachronistic or elitist. And I think they find that really threatening. And one of the reasons why I think people find that threatening, maybe this is different in England than in the States, is that everyone in the U.S. is told from a really young age that you're a poet by virtue of being human. Like, you're, you're a person, you have an intense internal experience, and if you share that in language, that's poetry, right? And so what happens is that people then fall away from poetry. Maybe they, like, dabble in it for a little while in college. Like, you hear that a lot or something. And then people turn away from poetry, and then suddenly they confront a poem they don't understand or a poet, some person who claims to be a poet. And I think it almost sounds like the person saying, I'm more human than you, or I have more access to emotion than you, or I have like more intense feeling than you. So it necessarily sounds pretentious. And if you look at a poem and you find it, it excludes you or you feel it's difficult, you might not just feel the way you feel when you hear like, you know, atonal music where you're like, I don't like that or I do like that. You feel like your status in the human community is a little bit called into question by the fact that you're being excluded from the poem. Does that have anything to do, do you think, with this fact, perversely, that, you know, children are expected to produce poetry when they're very, very young and told that it's poetry, when it's actually a craft that's difficult and that requires you to to learn in a way, you know, you work up towards eternal music. And there's this assumption that poetry is a sort of originary expression that's given to you as a child. I think it is like that. I think the given I think the given is a really good term for it. There's an idea that poetry the poetic should be given you by virtue of being human. And so people have an an embarrassing relation to it because if you don't have it in your life and then you encounter someone who claims to be a poet, it feels like, yeah, that, that you, you're, you're, you experience a kind of alienation from something that should be natural to you. And then, of course, you know, the, the poem either feels like it includes everyone but only at the expense of being a cliche or it feels exclusionary and difficult and so then it seems elitist. So then particular poems start to feel partial precisely where there was this assumption of givenness or universality. I also think the other thing about being a poet is if, you know, saying you're a poet is kind of like, you know, somebody's asking you like what you do. Someone's asking you for your job and then you say you're a poet. And they don't know how to place that relative to the economy. I mean, it sounds kind of... If they're publishers, they do. Yeah. Yeah. If they're publishers, they know that you're a, yeah, that you're a, you're a drag on their resources or whatever. But I think, I think that the, you know, it's like it's in Whitman. I talk about this in the book. Like, there's a weird way that the claim to be a poet embarrasses our expectations about what it means to be like an adult in the economy, right? I mean, so Whitman on the one hand is always claiming to do the most important work imaginable. He's like going to write the secular Bible of the United States. And on the other hand, he's always just loafing. That's a key word in Whitman, taking his ease under some flowering tree. He doesn't do anything. He doesn't work. And I think that there's a similar thing at play with poetry. When somebody says like, you're a, you're a, a dentist or, a, or, or you drive a cab or whatever, and somebody says they're a poet, it's like, well, what's your, you know, what's your real job? Um, well, isn't there also that, I mean, I, I can't remember whose line it is, but that line that poet is a praise word. You know, if you say I'm a poet, it's not like saying I'm an accountant. It's a, it's a sort of statement of having 
arrived or achieved yeah, something. Yeah, it's a itself. kind of superlative. I think that's true. I mean, I think that's part of part of the weird language game we play with the word poetry, where um, yeah, where it can name a kind of impossible height. You know, even just the way we talk about like an athlete being poetry in motion. Yeah, I think you're right. It sounds self-celebrating, even though most poets know that the experience of being a poet doesn't involve a lot of self-celebration. <laughs> self-singing yeah i mean one of the things i found myself thinking when i read the hatred of poetry was the sort of version of poetry that you describe in it is seems to be a particular kind of tradition of lyric poetry and in order to sort of fulfill either the dispraise or encouragement that your book suggests for it you have to exclude lots of things you know that poetry has done in practice in history so you know Milton using it for theodicy or Robert Browning using it for, in a way, kind of prosy sort of drama. I mean, is that a, something to do with just our definition of poetry or is that just the sort of poetry you're talking about? Well, I, I actually think that the book would have a good account for Milton and a good account for Browning, but not a good account for a lot of other poems that really matter to me. That is to say, it doesn't have much to say about poetry that doesn't participate in this kind of not just a lyric ambition, but a poem that doesn't have this kind of radicalism of the ambition that can allow the poems to kind of fail in this particular way. I mean, like you could you could make an argument that, you know, Milton kind of, you know, that Milton really wants to bring about a new consciousness, you know, and to, edu- give, to provide a moral education for the reader. And I think that we could say that that wasn't actualized by the poems, you know, um, for all its power. And you could even think about how you know, maybe Browning uses kind of the dramatic or the monologue as a way of kind of getting out of the problem of the poem merely being a poem. Like he kind of uses that in order to escape the poem, like as a, as a tactic, right, for avoiding um, the poem seeming just like writing. And it's a way of kind of protecting it as performance. But there, but there are all kinds of poems that this way of talking really doesn't apply to. You know, and the book the book is like far from pretending to be kind of comprehensive. But I think that in the culture, when you encounter contempt, embarrassment, et cetera, around the around poetry or poets, it really does tend to have a deep lyric association in the sense of an of the impossible demand both to be an individual singer and to be totally socially recognizable, which is a kind of lyric dynamic. But there's all kinds of experiments with writing all that, about which this way of talking really is not relevant. I mean, as I say in the book, like the, the way of talking, the kind of framework that the hatred of poetry uses tends to be really good at talking about incredibly ambitious, great poetry, Emily Dickinson, someone like that, and really horrible poetry, like McGonagall. You it's know? got a lovely little reading of the great Tay Bridge disaster. Yeah. So it, it kind of, but it doesn't have a lot to say about really good poems and all their variety. You know, so it, yeah, you're, you're totally right. And it's not, it's, it's not at all an attempt to speak for, it doesn't even contain a definition of poetry, let alone a, an attempt to kind of talk about all poetry to all people. What I also wondered is how much your you know, point about poetry always being overshadowed by the impossible version of itself that it's trying to produce. I mean, doesn't that also apply to almost any other art form you care to mention? I mean, you know, the essay, you know, its very yeah. name suggests it's just an attempt. Yeah. You know, novels or any, anybody who's written one knows that it's never as good on the page as it was in your head, you know. Right. What is it then that marks poetry out as a special sort yeah. of discourse? Is it just the way we describe it? 
I think I think I mean it's, I think it's totally true that this kind of logic of falling short of uh, you know the kind of ideal that gave rise to the work is true of all kinds of practices art, artistic and otherwise. I think that we use the word poetry. It's less that I think there's a truth about poetry in some kind of like abstract platonic sense and more that I think we use the word poetry in the culture to describe the most ambitious kind of writing. And so we encounter the most acute disappointment. So even in like theories of the novel or the way people think about the novel, you know, if you think about like the way the philosopher Lukács talked about the novel, it was, or the way most critics have talked about the novel. It's like, we used to have poetry. We used to have a world where things made sense and meaning, you know, dwelled in the world and we could, where we had secure sources of value, you know, religious and otherwise. And so poetry was possible and everyone read it and everyone loved it. And it's, you know, it tends to be a very historic historically an accurate idealized vision and then we had alienation right then like god was proclaimed dead and then you know urbanization happened and there and so on and so forth and then we started writing novels that are all about you know the disconnect between the individual and the social and this falling away from the conditions of poetry so poetry i'm saying is a word we use to describe a kind of I, not always, but often used as a way of describing a kind of linguistic achievement where we're most likely to be really disappointed. And it's also a word we use in the culture just to describe imaginative or creative capacity in general. And so I think in a world where we feel like our lives are increasingly administered and increasingly dominated by economic forces, poetry is both more important than ever and also the word becomes a site of more anxiety than ever before because we're always anxious about the degree to which that set of human imaginative capacities or the ability of the language to create new things. We're, we're worried about the degree to which those are still available spaces in our lives. So I think we, we have more anxiety and more potential for disappointment and embarrassment when, when the thing we're looking at is called a poem. How does that, I mean, you, you describe very well this idea of a sort of you know, looking back to an always imaginary past, you know, I mean, in this country, we always complain that Private Eye magazine is never as good as it used to be, which, <laughs> right. you know, they've, I'm sure on issue one, they were saying that. But there's also a kind of personal thing that young people tend to, as you've said, be associated with poetry to, to be expected to take an interest in poetry. And historically, a lot of poets, I mean, Robert Lowell said, poets die young, they're beaten bombs them. I mean, do you think there is some connection between poetry and youth in a sort of personal way? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think there's the just the empirical fact of, you know, it's funny because I feel like poetry is often described both as something for the very young or like the very old, right? You know, it's like, it's either it's either kind of the imaginative plasticity of language for kids. And then you write your bad poems as a teenager, you write your kind of breakup poems or whatever, and then you just give it up as a kind of childish pursuit. But then there are these poets that we think of as like gray headed who still care about poetry or whatever. I mean, I think I think there definitely is I think there is that really I mean, I basically think that that it's that you can say that all kids are poets and mean something more than a cliche. That is that the the very young, I mean, really children 
have a sense of language as material and often have a sense of an openness to all the different things meaning can mean, you know, like, like a, a, a way of kind of testing out new conceptual possibilities by stretching the material of language. And that's, I think, something that's harder and harder to maintain as you get like interpolated to an adult world, right? I mean, it's cute when your toddler produces, you know, magnificent nonsense sentence and it's not cute when it's like your cardiologist, right? So I think that there's there, there's that sense in which we fall away from language as a realm of pure potentiality and, it, and we, you kind of have to in a lot of ways. And then, you know, there's a romantic association of poetry and kind of passion, which we think of as the you know, the romantic, the kind of Keats dying young, right? I mean, the... the but, you know, the music you liked when you were 16 right. is the music that's going to mean most to you probably when you're in your mid-40s. Yeah. It, would you say the same applies to people in poems? I, that's slightly my experience. Yeah, I think I think that's true. I mean, I think it has to do... I think it has to do really with all the... It has to do with different ways in which we're open to alternative kinds of meaning and value like that gets shut down for most of us as we take on you know what we call responsibility i also think you know it's that there is always a power to the thing you encounter first to a certain degree but i actually think a really remarkable thing about poetry is the way that certain poems kind of defeat time and that you know when you come back to the poem as a different person you find a different poem and that you can kind of always return with a different so I, I do think what you're saying is totally true as a kind of sociological fact but I think poems ability to both persist and change over time as you read them um, I mean this is true of all arts but it's definitely something I encounter really powerfully in poetry and who are the poets you you have buried in that kind of part of yourself. I mean, there's a the hatred of poetry kicks off with you quoting, well, starting to learn a Marianne Moore poem for yeah. quotation at class. Can you yeah. can you remember that poem still? No, I get it wrong every time. That's what I talk about. I mean, it's like, you know, it's like two lines. But the first line that I too dislike it is is a line that, that I always have stuck in my head when I'm thinking about about poetry. I mean the first poems I remember were like nonsense verse of one sort or another or like Dr. Seuss children's books, which I think are very good books in a lot of ways. And then, you know, when I was kind of reading poetry that was like published poetry, I had a real, when I first read John Ashbery's poems, I had this like weird, I had this kind of vertiginous reaction to it. It's probably maybe the only time I feel like I've been like had such a weird kind of shock reading a poem but it wasn't just pleasure it was like what is this and why is this poetry and what is this doing in my brain where it at once feels totally intelligible and totally unintelligible and it was a kind of first experience that I guess for me remains the kind of like primordial encounter with a kind of experimental poet who remains deeply important to me but most of the poets who I love you know there's no way you would have heard of them even if you're like they're like american poets who exists in small uh, communities I, I i come from a town called topeka kansas and that's where i was born and for some bizarre reason all kinds of poets have come out of there i mean they all leave 
but all kinds of poets have come out of there. And like I grew up with and I'm still best friends with this great writer named Cyrus Consul, who also kind of appears in the novels in funny ways. So for my whole kind of, you know, for I guess now 20 years, a lot of my kind of immediate company, even even when I lived in Topeka, were other poets. I feel like you both have to have heroes from the past and you also have to have contemporaries. And so was Topeka a sort of serious literary culture there? I mean, you've got a moment of describing towards the end of The Hatred of Poetry being in Walmart and yeah. seeing it as like your Chapman's Homer or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Topeka, um, Topeka was a complicated place. I mean, it was an oak. I, I liked growing up there, but by the time I was in high school, it was for reasons I wouldn't pretend to be able to exp- like summarize. It was a very violent drug-addled series of strip malls. You know, it really kind of went the way of a lot of American Midwestern towns. But there were all of these writers, and part of that had to do with there being a few good writers who were there who were teachers, you know, and so people gravitated towards good teachers. But then since, you know, the other poets, the poets who had kind of left would come back and you'd kind of hear about them, and so it became self-sustaining. But I don't know. I don't know why. I mean, the answer is that if you ask most people about to Pika, the last thing in the world they would imagine is any kind of flourishing literary culture. But there was recently this article in a big American literary online magazine called Lit Hub, which basically was trying to figure out why there are all these interesting writers or serious writers from Topeka. I mean, my kind of eras, my like armchair anthropology is that, you know, there are a lot of smart people, there are a lot of smart people anywhere. And they, and poetry became a way of kind of trying to reclaim particularity for the language as there was all this standardization around us, you know, we're kind of the, in a very American way that not only an American way, but a very American way that kind of downtown got replaced with a peripheral mall and all the local restaurants became chains and you started to feel like you were in a kind of no place. And I think poetry is a way of fighting against that kind of that kind of generality, which like when he's at the Walmart, I mean, it does have its own sublimity when you see these, you know, aisles of cereal or whatever that go on forever, you know, like an, like an Agurski photograph or something. But I, I, my guess is that poetry was a way of reclaiming. Yeah, reclaiming yeah, a Walmart, relationship you have to people, language. You describe the people roller skating. Yeah, they were really, it wasn't actually even called a Walmart. It was called Hypermart. But it was part of the same. It was a it was a it was a hyper Walmart, and it was the only thing in Topeka that was open twenty four hours. So, like, kind of the you know stone teenagers or whatever would like end up there at five in the morning because it was like it was it was open. And yeah, at first at first there were there were roller skating staff. It's hard to believe now, but but I was there. I saw it. Can I ask? Money, you, I mean, as I introduced you, you know, you, you've been known here first as a novelist, and I guess that's, in a way, how you broke in America in terms of publicity. Do you think of yourself as a novelist primarily, or is poetry sort of where you come from? I think of poetry as the core for me. I mean, both novels, you know, are really involved with poetry and talk about, like, have poems in them and talk about ideas relating to poetry and the possibilities of poetry. And um, my criticism that I've written is either about poetry or touches poetry in some way. So, I mean, I think poetry for me is the link between all the different kinds of writing and the novels in a certain sense kind of grow up around poems and well, ideas about poetry. I meant to ask about that actually, funny. In 1004, there's this sort of longish poem yeah. that's included in it, which I understand you published separately first. Is that right? 
Yeah, it was yeah. In magazine, and now it's in this book that Granta has done, No Art, which I really like because it was a it was a it was a poem first, and the novel kind of grew up around it. It's excerpted in the novel, a long excerpt, and a kind of fictional narration of its construction. You know, it's a different poem in the novel. It serves a different function in the fictional world. But that poem, yeah, that poem preceded the novel entirely, and I had no inkling of the novel when I wrote it, and now it's appearing here. Um, in a book for the first time, which I really like. It still isn't in a book of poems in the U.S. yet. So do you see it, I mean, is it sort of the scaffolding or the centre of the novel, or is it simply something to which the novel attached itself before moving on and then it becomes returns to being a thing in its own right? I mean, I like to think of it as a bridge uh, between the fiction and the and the, uh, the non-fiction of poetry. You know, we don't... I mean, I talk in 1004 about how one of the things... The narrator says one of the things he loves about poetry is that we don't tend to think in terms of fiction or nonfiction so much as kind of what intensities of experience the poem itself can disclose or make possible. And the poem in question, this long poem, is all about Whitman and thinking about Whitman and talks a lot about the, the Brooklyn Bridge. So I like to think of the poem as this bridge between the novels and the verse as it kind of it kind of walks right out of the book back into back out of the fictional world back into a book of poems. I think that probably wraps it up. Thank you very much, Thank ben. you. Thanks for having me. And that book of poems is No Art, published by Granta. And Ben's monograph is The Hatred of Poetry, published by Fitzcarraldo Editions. I very much hope you'll buy them. And in the meantime, if you enjoyed this, please subscribe to our podcast at iTunes. Until next time.